The following demonstration elucidates the phenomenological paradox as revealed by the logical positivists and phenomenologists, among others. Phenomenologists acknowledge that physical persons have no path to knowledge but the five senses. These five senses and the knowledge they can acquire is insufficient to prove the existence of God. However, the five senses are unable to demonstrate the possibility of God's non-existence. The five senses are insufficient for proving God exists, but this is insufficient grounds for rejecting the existence of God because phenomenologists cannot prove physical reality exists, either. At most, the five senses are neutral as regards the existence or non-existence of God. To put this another way, phenomenology cannot prove or disprove anything. No absolute or conclusive position can be derived from the phenomenological position. It throws doubt on everything. Therefore, it is true phenomenology causes us to doubt the existence of God, but logically, it ought to cause us to doubt everything, including the reasonableness of being a phenomenologist. Phenomenology cannot even remove doubt about itself and its findings. There is no logical possibility other than either God exists or the physical reality phenomenologists postulate exists does not. Phenomenology is incapable of adjudicating the dilemma as it can neither validate one or the other. The only thing phenomenology has done is demonstrate there are no sensory-based methods of validating the existence of the physical world. There are no sensory-based methods of conclusively demonstrating physical reality exists. In short, the only confirmed truth phenomenologists were capable of is the proof that there is no proof possible that physical reality exists. Anyone who believes physical reality exists does so solely on faith and this cannot ever change. Thus, as exact and as productive as empirical science has been, it simply proves that if we engage in precision-based thinking, we can produce far better results than by academic speculation and the eyeballing of dimensions. There is nothing objective about the length of a meter or foot or any of our other units of measure. They are selected by humans and fabricated out of general observation because they meet certain criteria established subjectively. The systems of measurements we use permit very precise measurements to be made. But it ought to be understood a measurement is not a physical thing, but a conceptual category. The five senses always impose subjectivity on the observer. There is always a consciousness behind the five senses. The eyes do not work without the spirit of awareness. But then the question has to be asked about how dependent is consciousness on the eyes? Is our sensory view of the world a subjective choice that spiritual beings make? We cannot know because without the body we are divorced from the physical view of things. 
Phenomenologists reject everything but what arrives through their sensory organs. But what came first, the image or the analytics? Even if atheists do not consider the metaphysical nature of analytics, the brain must analyze the signals it receives. Signals can be transmitted to a computer's operating system, but if it has no interface to translate the digital signal into something intelligible to humans, the programming of the computer achieves nothing. So, it is with the brain. The body can send sensory data to the brain through nerves, but what does the brain do with the signals it receives? How does it know it is a tree the eye sees? The eyes may send electrical impulses to the brain, but if no one is there to evaluate or organize the input who sees anything. In other words, despite all the electrical activity, who or what is looking at the final product of all of this activity? Who watches what is going on? How do we see what our eyes see or feel what our fingers feel if we are the signal being transmitted? Could a computer type its own keyboard and by this process create the works of Shakespeare? Who would care if it was Shakespeare or random typing? A computer cannot create because it cannot see what it is doing. A computer does not comprehend the difference between literature and meaningless strings of letters. Men can see a cup and imagine it a different color, shape, or composed of a different material. But why would we do this or be able to do this? There is the perennial discussion waged about the dangers of robots and artificial intelligence and the possibility of machines taking over the world. But why would they? Why ought a machine care if it is a machine in the service of men rather than humanity's boss? We might think it natural for something with sufficient power to exploit that power. But what is in it for a machine? What possible benefit is there for a machine to have power? A machine does not care if the wall is white or blue or if mankind eats meat or vegetables. It has no grounds on which to care. Machines operate by rules but has no way to determine which rules it will operate by. To begin with machines do not feel and so have no need to desire bodily autonomy. Where would a machine get a sense of cell F since it has no sensitivity of self? Machines contain no nerves and therefore cannot have a sense of its autonomy. Atheists have a body sense and strive to avoid physical injury and death. However, they share kinship with computers and other machines in that they lack any sense of a moral self. Like machines, they operate by rules. They claim they know right from wrong, but technically what they understand is positive law versus negative law. They know what is legal and what is illegal. But they possess no moral sense of commitment to these legal positions, and if reversed, they would follow the law all the same. 
which is why fascists can fight for free speech for them and oppose the right for others to voice dissent. Atheists are autonomous self-programming machines with the state providing the inputs. We have noted that machines will not take over the world because they lack the motivation to do so. Atheists are, however, highly motivated to seek power. However, they lack the moral boundaries that would restrain them from wanting absolute power. Atheists therefore exist in a condition halfway between man and machine. Atheists are ethical entities and are therefore governed by laws. In this they are akin to a machine. They cannot be good because they lack the moral sense required to be good. Atheists are legalists and can be good in a legal sense but not good in the moral sense of the term. Yet, that being said, atheists are not machines and exhibit a distinct difference from them. Atheists are able to exhibit motivation. The danger is and the correlation is that the motivation of an atheism is akin to that which might conceivably be programmed into a killer robot. The robot may not actually hate humans yet will transcend every obstruction to get at us, to kill us. This is the same kind of obsessive compulsion atheists have. It can be observed in capitalist greed and the political lust for power. The motivations of atheists tend to be monomaniacal. But this singular obsession is what we would expect to see in a robot program to do a single task. The obsession with money does not make much sense from a human perspective. There is only so much consumption a person is capable of, after a certain point, making money becomes a desire in its own right. The atheist has no moral boundaries. This is why all addictions share the same features. The addicted personality has no inbuilt restraints. The addictive personality never gets to the point where the obsession fades or the addiction is satiated. To understand the nature of addictive behavior, we need to understand the mechanism that drives the atheist or killer robot. It is not the inert element that causes the addiction, it is the response of the individual that drives the addiction. Killer robots are programmed to seek out and destroy human life, and so the program is open-ended. There is no shutdown event or exit strategy because there is no event that marks the end of all human life. Synthetic truths are contingent. The death of a human only increases the probability that all humans are dead. It does not remove uncertainty regarding the existence of humans. In the case of the killer robot, there is always the chance a human still remains alive. In the case of a machine, it merely seeks to fulfill the conditions of an open-ended command. The robot is programmed to seek and kill humans. The program is never terminated. But atheists are not programmed to amass property nor to perform acts of charity. 
The only programmer the atheist has to satisfy is himself. The atheist accumulates wealth because this is what he or she has programmed himself to do. If a little wealth is a good thing, a lot of wealth is a better thing. At what point does wealth represent a negative value? Atheists are victims of their own self-created, self-reinforcing cycle. But what is behind this addiction is a moral failure. Atheists are after a free ride, and they use many ploys to justify their expropriations. These ploys can diverge significantly. Capitalists and the indigent both want others to work for them, but the tactics each group uses differs. Yet, they still feel a need to justify their expropriations. No one needs to justify getting a benefit from the work they do, but when one is living off of the avails of others, long and often convoluted explanations are offered. In the end, all addictions are qualitatively the same. An addiction is a trick the addict plays on himself. The addict attempts to exploit the system and the tolerance of others to get more for less. Addicts are always attracted to the possibility of a free ride. The addiction is an obsession with increasing the margin between input and output. Another way of viewing addiction is as a rejection of moral boundaries. Addictions do come down to an immersion into a form of consumerism that becomes an obsession. The key to this level of consumerism is getting something for nothing. The abandonment of moral values requires the adoption of a rule-based system which legitimizes the addiction. Often this legitimacy is not much more than excusing what one is doing already or what one would like to do because one is doing it. When atheists say they know right from wrong, they mean they know what they want to do and how to justify it. They understand what they dislike being told they cannot do. What atheists do not mean is that they know the fundamental difference between what actions have value and which ones cannot be justified by a neutral third-party observer. If a car engine could run on perpetual motion, there would be nothing to prevent it from running forever. Atheists run into the same problem. They have a perpetual motion morality. Their morality is not tied to any standard. They can decide something is good without concern for its costs or who pays for it. Once communism became part of the liberals' social agenda, it was a good without boundaries and everything could be and was justified on the grounds it moved forward the communist agenda. The same goes for BLM, Aboriginal Reconciliation, and other liberal agendas. Because they are considered moral goods, they are desirable ends without any boundaries. In the atheist world, if it is good for all people to have food, then food is provided as an ultimate good. Feeding people is turned into a first-order principle. 
Liberal do-gooders act as if there is no cost to food and no downside to feeding anyone who wants food. But this goes for their entire social agenda, which is divorced from any consideration about costs and repercussions. Atheists brag they know good from evil, but their good is whatever concerns them. Their bad is what annoys them. There is a line between good and evil, but it is not defined by the emotional reaction of liberals. Indeed, liberals have no idea where the line between good and evil is because in their mind good and evil is subjective appellations, akin to nice and nasty. When liberals are concerned about hunger, they will give people food. But there is nothing about people being hungry that is inherently wrong in their eyes. A hungry Trump supporter, for example, is viewed differently than a hungry BLM supporter. Liberals have no way of knowing if what they are doing is actually good in the eyes of a neutral third-party observer, or if what they are doing is evil. They call what they do good, but that is because they feel good doing it. More harm has been done by people claiming to be doing good than by patently evil persons. It is by their inability to be good in an objective and measurable way, according to the view of a neutral third-party observer, that proves the necessity for God. This necessity for God is contingent on the desire to do actual, measurable good. If this desire is missing, then God's existence is irrelevant. If the person is unconcerned about evil, God is not necessary. God is not needed and indeed is an impediment if the concern about evil is missing. However, if one wishes to do good and to truly know good, then God is required. We cannot be good without God because we cannot draw a line between good and evil without God having created the line. And without this line clearly defined, the possibility of doing and being good is eliminated. Without God we have only our social agendas to guide us and these have nothing to do with an absolute, metaphysical good and a measurable and verifiable evil. The analytical and demonstrable inability of atheists to ascertain and establish a line between a verifiable and measurable good and an equally concise and objective definition for what is evil is absolute proof of the absolute and incontrovertible necessity for God, at least for moral human beings. In short, atheists demonstrate one cannot be a perfectly moral human being without God.